found myself exhausted and depleted at the end of each day. You know, at one point I said to myself, wow, this is a damn tragic book you wrote. (laughs) Just ease up on the people, the man. Hi everyone, welcome to Like a Real Book Club, a podcast from Rebel Women Lit, where we talk about books and just about everything else. I'm Jorane. I'm Christina. And I'm Ashley. In today's episode, we get a chance to talk to Sarah Collins about her debut novel, The Confessions of Franny Langton. The book follows Franny, a formerly enslaved Jamaican woman who is taken to England and accused of murder murdering her lover and her lover's husband specifically. We follow Franny through her confessions and we are taken back and forth between Jamaica and England. It is full with a lot of unexpected twists and turns. We talked about this book in our last podcast, so if you haven't, you can check that out. And yeah, it was a delight speaking to Sarah about this book. Which was super cool because she's an amazing woman. Like... When you talk about smart, when you talk about witty, when you talk about just like into actually captivating, yeah, that's Sarah Collins. She's great. I loved every second of talking with her. I was just, I just kept thinking, wow, goals, 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 goals. (laughs) She's great. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think I've ever been as impressed by someone in a very long time. And I was super impressed with um sarah collins and i hope that doesn't sound condescending it just means that i'm in complete awe of her intellect and also she's really funny in real life um as funny as she is in her books so it was really fun talking to her yeah and it felt like an easy conversation too i mean you know how authors, they're depending on how big their books are, they're kind of like celebrities. Like she, she was very approachable. She was very welcoming with the questions that we had to ask. And she just kind of felt like talking to like a really cool professor or like a cool aunt in a way. I don't know if you guys felt the same way. Like she's a teacher that you want to impress because she's just amazing and you want to get like good grades in her class. I was getting that vibe from her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Up yourself, good girl, Sarah. Big up. <laughs> All right. So I hope you guys enjoyed this interview as much as we did. It's really unusual because research is not usually the number one thing that excites people. <laughs> so I am gratified, I suppose, and surprised that that's one of We're the all nerds that- here. <laughs> We're all nerds. <laughs> I'm, I'm among friends. Um, I have to say the research was the thing that exhausted and frustrated me the most in the writing of the book. And I think it only connects with readers if you um, manage to bury it successfully so that the trickiest thing about the research isn't doing it, but using it in a way that enhances a novel without overloading it. So I always remember this um, thing that Rose Tremaine, who's a wonderful writer of historical fiction said, which is research has to be reimagined before it makes its way into the text. 
And I kept that in mind because there's a vast amount of information that you have to gather to write a novel like this. But people aren't really interested in reading fiction to learn something. They're, I think people read fiction to feel something. And so for yeah. me, all of this research was only in service of what was it going to enable my characters to feel and then by extension, the readers to feel through them. Um, so, you know, I did, there, there obviously is a huge part of writing a novel like this that is just work and it's a lot of drudgery and it felt a bit like a history class and it felt also a bit like being a lawyer, which I did for um, too many years before turning my um, <laughs> attention to novel writing. So getting things organized by topic, thinking to the extent I could about what question I needed to answer before I started to research, because otherwise it can be a huge distraction and um, a, a sort of time-sucking exercise. Uh, identifying what would have been most important to my protagonist. And then a lot of the research, I think the most effective stuff probably came from the personal. So I am also a Jamaican by background who left Jamaica very young and who went to England very young and went to boarding school. And a lot of, for example, Franny's reaction to first arriving in England is just basically stolen from my my own immediate experiences. <laughs> and for me, it was all about sensory, sensory experiences. How would things have looked? How would they have smelled? How would they have felt? And all of that, I think, is immensely more interesting than what happened in history on, on what date. Um, so I wasn't really interested in the big historical timeline, but more in how does that connect with people you know history um historical fiction is about how people felt about things history is about what happened historical fiction is about how what happened felt to people like you and me and i, I kept that in mind that came up a lot in book club the personalization of history and how we tend to avoid a lot of historical fiction or just history books that deal with the slave narrative. And a lot of this is because it, yes, it often feels <laughs> one dimensional. Yes, definitely. And yes. it also feels as if it's always a fetishization of yeah. pain. Yeah. Painting yes. black bodies as something that things happened to. Right. And not necessarily the story. So I, one of the things that came up a lot was just how refreshing it was to read a story where the, the character had some level of autonomy. I mean, we're looking at her with 21st century eyes, but at the same time, she had, she was snarky. She had personality. She was... Mm. Desire, she had interests. And she... Yeah, she was interested in sex. I mean, imagine that in <laughs> yes. <the whole> fiction. <laughs> Yeah, that was something that was unexpected and definitely not something you see in a character um, with this uh, genre. So, I mean, that was refreshing for me. I like the nuance that Franny had. She was an, a complete person and not just uh, a slave, you know? I love so much that you guys have said that because I had a problem. You know, I, I don't think a lot of people understand when I say this, but... Um, I am really reluctant to read any novel that is advertised to me as being about slaves or slavery. 
after I finished writing this novel, I tried to make a conscious effort to stop using the word slave. I, I usually say when I remember enslaved person rather than slave now. But, um, but I, you know, I was a black woman writing in the 21st century, a novel about someone who happened to have been enslaved. And I was really aware that a lot of readers would have that same kind of reluctance that I did, in particular if they felt this is just going to be another one of those slave stories. And it's one of the reasons why in chapter one, you know, on I think probably the fourth or fifth page, Franny herself says, this is not going to be another one of those slave stories all sugared over with misery and despair. Mm -hmm. Because I was really conscious as a writer of, first of all, it's been done before. I had Toni Morrison in mind. You know, she, she did it in a way that almost no one else has to do it. But also as a reader, I know we are fed up with these reductive narratives um, with there only ever being one story in historical fiction for black characters and that story always somehow being victimhood and how, you know, suffering creates nothing but stereotypes. And for me, it really wasn't about, I wanted the novel to start in Jamaica for, for autobiographical reasons, which are obvious. You know, I, it, it was one of the things that really attracted me to writing this book was this idea I could write myself back home because I left Jamaica when I was four, but I was brought up in a very Jamaican family, very proud of it. So if I'm going to write a novel set in the early 19th century, I wanted to have a Jamaican connection. And the reality is the Jamaican connection meant if I didn't address slavery, it would have been a huge elephant in the room. But for me, it wasn't about that. It was very much about the fact that I had this early obsession with gothic romances like Jane Eyre, like Rebecca, uh, like Wuthering Heights. And so I wanted a Jamaican female character, a Jamaican woman, to be the star of her own gothic romance. So although the novel had to start with this kind of historical reality, what I really wanted for my protagonist was someone who would turn all of what you were expecting on its head. So she was going to be highly educated even though she was the maid, she was going to be the most intelligent person in the room. Um, She was going to be angry. She was going to be complicated. So she's not strictly a good quote unquote character in the way that victimhood sort of flattens us. You know, she's complicated. She's an anti-hero at times, but most importantly that she was going to be in love and that there was going to be a lot of shagging. So, you know, I've described the novel as um, (laughs) Jane Eyre if Jane had, shag the mad woman in the attic and then right. accused of murdering Mr. Rochester. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the idea that if we are going to write anything that has to do with the historical reality of slavery, that we can shed this expectation that it's going to be some kind of misery laden thing, you know, that we can do something completely different and unexpected with it now. It's funny that you mentioned, um, characterizing Frenny as this complex um, woman. I actually referenced your work this morning to someone on Twitter who wanted to see more um, complex women, women who are textured and layered. And I found that Frenny was one of the perfect characters for that. She embodied a lot of things that uh, people don't necessarily use to describe women in novels. not the stereotypical damsel in distress. um, And as you mentioned, the sort of victimhood that's painted on enslaved people. She was somebody who was completely complex. She was curious. She was smart as hell. She was witty. 
she, as Jiren mentioned, she was a snob. <laughs> um, yes. She thought she was the smartest person in the room all the time <laughs> and that everyone was just stupid. And I really appreciated that because, again, we're not used to seeing um, women, much less enslaved um, women in that way. And that's something that we discussed a lot in book club, just the fact that uh, here is this story of this personalized story of enslaved people because the one that we usually get is one that's very abstract or one that is very monolithic or one that um, sort of paints them in a broad brush. We don't get to see who they are as human beings and what their personalities could have been like and that not all of them were wonderful, not all of them were quote-unquote good. They were people with interests, people with um, a whole story. And I sincerely appreciated that about the characterization of Franny. Thank you. I, I appreciate you saying that. And I know, you know, the challenge is that she is going to come across as unlikable to some readers. And, and I think people are, sometimes people are reluctant to tell me that, you know, because they think if they say they didn't like the protagonist, that means they didn't like the novel. That you're going to feel that. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. There are so many wonderful novels um which are all about looking at what makes us unlikable as human beings as well as what makes us likable and i think if you can't you know if we're restricted to presenting two-dimensional black characters in particular in historical fiction who are always somehow saintly and preserved in a saintly victimhood then you know not only is it boring but also it's a complete disservice to the humanity of black people uh, it's not something that um, gets me excited as a novelist. And so, you know, I, I love when people say that they loved Franny, but I also understand when people say, Chuff, you know, I could not. And my sister-in-law actually messaged me at one point and said, girl, I've just thrown the book across the room. You know, what is wrong with this? No, but that was and, all um... of our reactions, though. <laughs> yes. We were no, very frustrated exactly. by her. Exactly what I was going for. You know, it's it is about it is about that conflict, um, which is which is at the heart of humanity between self interest and selflessness, and between victimhood and whatever your agenda is, and looking at how people survive these things, and looking at the the broad spectrum of our existence. So, so you know, I love it. I love when people are challenged by her and you know reading on, even though they find everything she's doing and saying frustrating. <laughs> I absolutely loved being frustrated with Franny or being frustrated at Franny and wanting to reach into the book and shake her like Meg does not love you. Please stop <laughs> what you're doing, please. But, but I think at all points, we've all been there. So that was also refreshing to see. Yes, you know, we have the first love. I mean, we, you don't have to have been, and this, this again goes back to, this is nothing about slavery or having been an enslaved person. This is just so many people's experiences of the first love that really isn't good for you, that you're projecting mm -hmm. yourself onto this person. Um, and the question is whether it's love at all and whether it's, whether it's um, beneficial at all, but yeah. you're still, you're not going to be talked out about it. How many of us have that friend like Sal, who's trying to get us to see the reality of like this so-called love affair. <laughs> I think we had um, we had mentioned that in book club too that we weren't even sure if Franny was actually in love with Meg. Um, I was thinking of the um, the fact that Meg was one of the first persons to speak to her like a human being, and her sort of inf um, infatuation with. Uh, 
um, someone being amused by her and interested in her and that sort of acting as a drug, cough, cough. And and the, the, the response to that, the sort of infatuation with someone being so interested in you as a human being and never, you know, living your life, living your entire life as a, as property, as people view you as property. And then here comes this person who seemingly humanizes you and takes an interest in you and who you are. I think that would have been extremely addictive for her at that time. Yes, and you touch on the addiction because one of the things um, that compromises their feelings towards each other is Meg's own addiction. So she has her demons and one of those is laudanum. But the other which they have in common is this addiction to wanting more, you know, an addiction almost to self-expression. So they both Mm -hmm. want to write Um, at a time when, for different reasons, people in their circumstances were prevented from writing. Um, and Meg, in a way, is sort of blind to the privilege of her position. You know, she feels that she and Franny oh, have God. in common <laughs> the fact that they are that they are. Um, we're woman. We're women. That's familiar. all. That's important. <laughs> <laughs> yes, isn't that very familiar? But I, I did want to play around with that. And in my, you know, if an author is allowed to have some affection for her characters, I really wanted them to have. Um, I wanted them to have real love, but but you know number one real love doesn't really make novels i mean novels are built on conflict and real love is not a good source of conflict um all of the wonderful gothic romances i mentioned when you look at them through a cold dispassionate lens are all really dysfunctional they're not healthy relationships at all not one of them i mean one of the the sort of disappointments of my adulthood was realizing what an asshole mr rochester was because i thought (laughs) i loved that book and that character (laughs) as a teenager but you know these are just not good people and and their love affairs are not um not conflict free um but the other thing was this idea of intersectionality so i didn't want it to be anachronistic but i think it's interesting when you look at what has united and separated women throughout history how little that has changed in fact and how um you know although we are united by our experiences to a certain extent there is that question of privilege and what blinds people to other people's experiences. Uh, and I, I did have a little bit of fun with that with Meg, it had to be, had to be said. Yeah, Meg's white feminism was something that I found very eye-rolly. I made so many <laughs> notes where I was just like, no, Meg, you're not the same. Um, <laughs> yes. I was interviewed by someone about this once who said, you know, were you trying to draw a parallel between 19th century marriage and slavery? And I was really taken aback because, you know, it's exactly the opposite. It was an inversion. It was, I was trying to, um, wow. to, in, in fact, to sort of encourage a little bit of satire about people who could think that there is. Do I even parallel. have to ask if they were white? <laughs> I'm not going to answer. <laughs> a lot there I think and I, and I think the, the one of the joys of historical fiction and I know there are some people who as soon as they hear a novel is historical will turn off because they'll think it's just going to be too much work to read but one of the joys of historical fiction is if you can get really close to the pulse of the things that that occupy us now uh, without being anachronistic but um but it's really eye-opening to see how little has changed in some of these discussions between the early 19th century and now. 
One of the questions I wanted to ask was around Meg, um, her relationship with her husband, her relationship with Laddie, and just the maids around her. Um, what inspiration did he have for Meg's character and just the relationship she had with people? It's, that's a good question. And actually, I think it takes us back to research because the spark for her was a true story, much like the spark for Franny was a true story, which I'll come back to. But in um, Meg's case, uh, the first thing I came across which informed her development was this story of the Duchess of Queensbury and her little page boy, Julius Sabis, who was brought to her when he was a little boy. I forget from where it was, from one of the Eastern Caribbean islands. And he grew up as a kind of son of her family. You know, she was very attached to him. She took him everywhere, which many of those um, upper class women did at the time with their little servants from the West Indies. And then when he became a man, there was obviously a lot of tension in the household and uh, the Duke uh, put him out although he supported him to his credit and I think even sent him off to university, which he dropped out of and gave him an allowance. But um, Julius Sabiz was very heartbroken by all of this, by all accounts. And he became a kind of dissolute, you know, drunk and frequenting prostitutes and went off to India and died after falling off of a horse there. Um, and I just thought, you know, that was a, that was, first of all, it was a story that, for me, not a lot of attention has been paid to. And I, th I, you know, it immediately then triggered this question for me, which is what did happen to all of those little children who were brought over as essentially as playthings for these wealthy women when they grew up? And what, what a tragic story that was. But also this idea of a woman who is so self-centered as to have human beings as playthings in England where they prided themselves that everyone was free, yet, you know, the sheer hypocrisy of that. And how a woman like that could, on the one hand, feel very hard done by as a woman and not realize how much her own spoiled behavior was impacting on other human beings. Um, and so Meg was born, really, the idea that you have this woman who is, she genuinely thinks that she is well-intentioned. Um, you know, that she's kind to her servants and that she genuinely loves them. But she's toying with them to a certain extent, um, almost in the same way in which the men she despises are toying with people as well. Uh, and again, you know, what I look for in characters is complication, really rich sources of complication. How can you get them to be both good and bad, um, how, to be aware and lack and fundamentally lack awareness and what happens when you put characters like that in the same space as each other and that reminds me of miss bella and how petty she was with that letter that she sent to franny <laughs> listen i really appreciated miss bella as a character so it reminded me so much about readings i would have done as about women who owned slaves and their role in the plantation economy and her pettiness was just so needed it was hilarious yes. and depressing and i really appreciated that you included her and that she came back in the end of the book <laughs> hilarious um, and depressing i mean isn't it funny that she came all the way from england and just all she could see when she sat on the porch up there in montego bay was her own victimhood that that's that was the thing that consumed her <laughs> the most peak <laughs> white woman right there um Talk to us a little about Fibber, because Fibber is one of our favorite characters in the book. She offered 
such wisdom to to Franny, though Franny didn't see it as wisdom before. And, you know, later we find out it's her mother. But um, talk to us about Fibba and why Fibba as a character is important to this story. Yeah, uh, Fibba, I, Fibba was one of my favorite characters to write. The other one was Sal. And I think it's because what they have in common is... Um, the most developed sense of self-awareness of anyone in the novel. Um, I think they kind of each represented in different ways what Franny could have been had she not been so concerned with kind of wriggling into a world that didn't want her. Um, having said that, I do want to say I, you know, Franny's motivations were in a sense built on my own um my own connection with the world of books and learning and how attractive that would have been and what, you know, what at what price would would we have wanted access to that if it had been taken away from us you know if we'd been cast back to the early 19th century by time machine so I understood it but Fibba and Sal in a way had found had found the ability to make peace with with their lot in life and with who they were and with not wanting access to that world that Franny found so attractive um and I really did not want a tragic end for Fibber. I, um, you know, again, if if it had been the kind of novel where the aim was to avoid conflict, then she and Franny would have made peace with each other and sat on the porch together and, and acknowledged their relationship. But that couldn't happen. Um, the, the, what Franny does to her in a way is meant to... Um, it's meant to reveal her own willful blindness, you know, the, the kind of harm that she causes, even if inadvertently, because of selfishness. And it's something she has to come to terms with in the end. Um, but I think the reason so many people love Fibba is precisely because she represents what we all think we would have achieved. You know, we all hope we would have reacted like Fibba and not like Franny. But actually, the really uncomfortable question the novel is trying to ask, I think, certainly the uncomfortable question for me as a writer was, are we sure about that? Are we sure we, we would have been so ultimately selfless? Um, or are we going to be honest about how selfish some of our own urges might have been? Oh, no, I definitely would have been a franny, so thanks for writing for me. <laughs> I wish I was Fibber, but no. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the thing. I think um, it, it's, it's actually a, it's something that makes me laugh, but it's actually a serious question because I think we all do tend to romanticize, you know, no matter what it, what it is in history, when we think ourselves back into it, we would have been the hero. You know, we would have been the selfless hero saving the day. Mm -hmm. But in fact, history is made up of so many people just trying to, not only to survive, but to thrive in their own individual ways that, um, you know, we're lying about it. If we, if, if it was all made up of selfless heroes, then none of the bad things would have happened. On Fibba's story, there, you had included a lot of use of herbs and medicine, and I really appreciated that and how a lot of that would have been, also that knowledge would have been stolen and rebranded repackaged in Europe can you talk about that um what research yes. you did for that because I just thought it was very profound and still very relevant to what happens today still very relevant I agree I um, cited a lot of my sources in the author's note because there was a significant amount of 
work done on this that I hadn't been aware of until I started writing the book, in particular by Lorna Schiebinger. But um, um, there, there is a there is a very interesting thread of historical knowledge, in particular about the Caribbean during the time period, medical historical knowledge, and how much of the medical knowledge that was used to advance um, conditions in Europe had been transported wholesale from the Caribbean without crediting the kind of folk healers that were the source of that. Um, I can't now remember the names of the text, but I have included all of them in the in the author's note <clears throat> because it seemed to me, and it goes back to what I was saying about slavery, I didn't want to, uh, one of the things that I fought with my editors who were all incredibly wonderful about this book and you know the best editors I could have asked for and really understood what I was what I was going for but one the only thing I thought about was um the feedback I got that that we should have that we should extend the paradise section that we should have more you know and it, it was something that people would would kind of need to understand how Franny behaves later and I resisted that I said you know the what last thing I want is more plantation I do not want to include anything stereotypical so I had a rule for myself that um, I would speak about slavery, but I would avoid all of the kind of scenes that people had seen already. And as a result, the only people I was interested in getting whipped in the novel, for example, were white men. And that's because, you know, they were all lining up at the at the gates of the brothel where Franny works in <laughs> London, begging to be whipped. And it's all black women doing the whipping. Yes. That was the only way in which I would yes. have any whipping. Um, and the other thing was that instead of this idea that all that was taken from us was physical labor, because that's all that we were good for, I really wanted to look at the intellectual stuff that was stolen. There was a lot of intellectual property stolen from um, people native to the Caribbean and people who were brought in as slaves during the time period, in particular in Cuba and Haiti and Jamaica. And the the intellectual property was stolen from groups of people who would have been outlawed as, um, you know, voodoo or obia and um, santeria. And it was very important, I think, and still is important to restore the balance and to recognize that, recognize what knowledge was actually stolen in that way. Hearing you say this is blowing my mind and it's making me love the book even more because, again, this isn't something that, um, that's typically talked about as much, just the the, the level of um, exploitation that um, enslaved Africans or enslaved people would have gone through, um, not just in terms of our bodies and our labor, um, but the emotional toll, the intellectual toll, um, the amount of uh, thought and um, our own indigenous um, ways of being would have been stolen and sort of repackaged into something that was more palatable for white people. Um, I don't think we consider that a lot. Yeah. Yes. And there's one, one of the, um, one of the subplots in the book is all about how Fibber's the one that keeps Miss Bella alive. You know, she's the one that gives her the more useful advice when she arrives. Um, And that, is a story that was repeated over and over in the Caribbean and not just in relation to medicine but also in relation to food you know the the best recipes um, the food that people enjoyed the most the music that people that the um, wealthy plantation owners enjoyed at their 
soirees and get-togethers, you know, the, the loving tenderness with which their children were raised. All of that was soul and labor and, and not just the, um, exactly, not just the cutting cane or planting cane or, you know, the stuff that we always reduce it to, which mm-hmm. I think it, it angers me because it, it is the foundation of this myth that black people are only good for physical labor or sports. And it perpetuates it if we don't recognize that there was so much else going on. There was so much more to that unequal um, transaction of slavery. And a lot of it was to do with intelligence and cleverness and smarts on the part of black people that was um, on the one hand exploited and on the other hand, completely unacknowledged. That kind of reminds me of... Um, it reminds me of something that I also got out of the book was um, when one of the abolitionists, the white abolitionists, um, they were asking Frenny to, or was it her lawyer, asking her to to make her story a little bit more uh, suffering-y, uh, to write her write her conve- confessions around just the, the awfulness of slavery and her refusal to play into um, their narrative and their version of what um, enslavement was. I sincerely appreciated, one, her agency to write her own story within her own words, um, but also the, the larger critique that I think um, was being made there. I don't know if it was intentional, but they, well, I think it's intentional because so far you've spoken very intentionally. Um, <laughs> just the, 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 the general critique of how white, white historians' versions of um, what would have happened is sort of linear. And it doesn't take into account the actual experiences of um, enslaved people. Yeah, no, this is interesting to me. What, what, um, one of the things that was an eye opener for, for me writing this novel is thinking about the role of abolitionists. And I didn't want to be, I didn't want to denigrate it because, of course, it was important. It's a debt that we owe, and I think it's a debt that's been um, comprehensively acknowledged throughout history. But um, there was also a lot of hypocrisy there, and there is a lot of hypocrisy in the historical record because I think it's restorative, and it's restorative for the psyches of white people in general, who after all have inherited the idea that many of their societies were built on slavery and therefore on the suffering of others. But how much and how well that can be alleviated by thinking that many of their ancestors were also the people who saved the day and rode to the rescue. And so you have the narrative of the white abolitionists, many of whom well-intentioned as they were, did um, do incredibly instrumental things. But, you know, for example, we celebrate someone like Wilberforce a lot more openly than we celebrate someone like Toussaint Louverture. Um, yes, and so the, the agency of the and and you know Ataki and Bogle and anyone and, and Queen Nanny of the Maroons, any of the figures of the resistance, you know, the, the black resistance to slavery, their efforts are somehow sidelined. And when I came to look at it, I realized it's because obviously, and this is one of the themes of the book, of who has written the history. 
you know, so isn't it interesting to me, for example, that we will celebrate the heroes of the French resistance in the Second World War, but what really is the difference between those people and the heroes of the resistance to slavery, the violent resistance to slavery, because sometimes it was and had to be violent. And there was also this hypocrisy about um, the abolitionists, which I touched on in the book in a way which I hope is simply honest, because of course I don't want to downplay that they were important in reversing the, the law of the times, but um, there was also this two-facedness about it. And one of the areas in which they were incredibly hypocritical is that there was a kind of condescension in their approach towards black people. So much of the abolitionist movement in, in England in particular was um, fueled by religious sentiment, but it wasn't about brotherhood or equality. It was about a kind of paternalistic concern for people who were still lesser than them, um, but, but, but shouldn't be suffering. Um, and it wasn't predicated on the idea that, well, this is someone who could marry my daughter or, you know, who I could be real friends with or consider myself um, entirely equal to. And I think we've lost sight of that in the way that we venerate many of the abolitionists, including Wilberforce. There was this wonderful story I came across about Wilberforce who refused to have, there was some visiting royalty from a country in Africa um, or a tribe in Africa who whom Wilberforce refused to have in his house simply because they were black. And that's the great abolitionist Wilberforce, you know, one of the heroes of the abolition movement. And we have completely missed all of the nuance about their intentions and their involvement, I think. I, I feel like I'm just obsessed with the research part. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I found Mr. Benham and Mr. Langton to be very interesting because they both think of each other as being completely different, but they just seemed like two sides of the same coin in terms yes. of their approach to how they viewed enslaved people and how they viewed the research that they were doing. And I'm very curious about, I know that Edinburgh had some collections about what would have been done in the Caribbean around scientific racism, but I was just very curious about the inspiration you had for their characters, if you could elaborate mm -hmm. on that, and just some mm -hmm. of the research you'd have found that would have happened here in the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, there's a lot, but not a lot of people know that it's there. Uh, one of the very first bits of material that I came across, um, that I am ashamed to confess, I don't think I'd come across before, and I should have, I'm sure you guys have, is, um, uh, Thomas Thistlewood's diaries. Unfortunately, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had luckily sort of escaped reading those. And then, you know, I read, I read them in their entirety um, in the early stages of researching this novel. And um, he is essentially Langton's forebear. Um, uh, I also, again, with Schiebinger, um, but also with the um, anatomy of blackness and some of the other books that I've cited in my author's note, came across these little anecdotes, sort of even footnotes, which led to um, me discovering some of the characters of a time period, many of them not in Jamaica. So I've taken liberties with uh, sort of conflating all of these people into one character, but there was a Dr. James Thompson, I forget in which country, who was um, 
um, notorious for this kind of experimentation, including bringing over an orangutan, which is something that I kind of hinted at in the novel. This whole development of um, the smallpox vaccination and yaws inoculations and how those were essentially tested on captive subjects in all of the plantations, as well as the father of modern gynecology in the plantations. And I think it was in Virginia in America. I can't remember exactly where and experimenting, you know, the, the um, surgery that was performed on women without anesthetic. Um, mm -hmm. in relation to some very horrible gynecological injury. So I kind of put all of those things together and imagined the worst possible combination of all of those things in Langton. Um, and I had a rule while I was writing the novel as well that I wouldn't invent anything. There's no need to invent it. In fact, I had to kind of shy away from some of the horrible stuff because A, people wouldn't believe it had really happened and B, it would just be too much for, for most people to bear. Um, so I, I really only hinted at the scale of it. But all of that stuff, um, all of that stuff is based on things that happened throughout the timeline of the development of scientific racism. And a lot of it in particular in relation to the obsession with where skin color comes from and what it means is really well yeah. documented in the anatomy of blackness by, I think it's, sorry, I don't have the book in front of me, but I think the author's surname is Curran. Um, I should remember this. I stared at that book every day for years, but um, trying to forget all of it now. But The Anatomy of Blackness was a very crucial text for me in uncovering Andrew, just Andrew how much, Andrew Curran, that's it, mm -hmm. just how much um, focus there was during the Enlightenment in, in isolating the agents responsible for skin color and trying to draw some link between that and the destiny of black people in particular as slaves and, you know, categories of mankind according to their abilities um, and you know and, and in fact it's a thread of scientific racism that is incredibly persistent because you have people like Jordan Peterson today who are um, you know and all the sort of modern day eugenists um, who are um, continuing that line of thinking and who advocate for um, public policies that are explicitly designed around people's capabilities according to race and class and the link between race and intelligence. Um, so it's not just some kind of throwback to history. It's something that affects people's lives to this day. I'm listening to you speak and you're blowing my mind, but I just, I really want to shift gears a little bit. Um, I want to ask about, uh, so I listened to the book. Um, uh -huh. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you about your process um preparing yourself to because there are lots of um authors who don't necessarily read their the books that they've written so i want to know what made you decide to take um control of that and to be the one of the chief narrators of the book and what the process was like in preparing for that yeah it wasn't my idea i um should say that up front i um, was invited by my editor at Penguin to do a reading from the book before it was published um, in-house, so just for a, um, a collection of uh, Penguin staff. And um, we had a wonderful afternoon doing that. But the person who narrates the book with me, who is the head of audio at Penguin, was in the audience and it was his idea. So I completely blame him. <laughs> um, 
I have no acting training whatsoever. So it was daunting. And I don't, I didn't know what I was getting into. It's hugely, it's, it's a much, I found it much more emotionally demanding than writing the book because I achieved a kind of emotional distance from the work when I was writing the book. I knew that I was creating these characters and making them do things. And I knew why I was making them do those things. But when I came to read the book, I had to inhabit the story from a very emotional point of view. I had to, you know, it was almost like method acting. I had to connect myself to the material in a way that I hadn't when I was writing it. And so it became, um, it became really, uh, grueling. I, w- I found myself exhausted and depleted at the end of each day. You know, I, at one point I said to myself, well, this is a damn tragic book you wrote. <laughs> Just ease up on the people, the man. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, I had all of the, you know, my voice was going and it was, it was four days of recording at the studios oh, and Penguin oh. with the, um, with the very wonderful director who directed the um, book and read the part of uh, Mr. Benham kind of giving me um, directions and through my headpiece. So it was, it was a kind of a Beyonce moment, but it was also incredibly difficult because of, for the first time I experienced everything that I had put into the novel and I realized how, um, incredibly moving a lot of it was and you know how much I really didn't want some of the things that had to happen to the characters to happen when I was um, when I was reading it that way the other problem was um, that I you know it's bad enough having written a book that your friends and family are going to read but then I realized that my my parents were going to have access to the audio recording of me narrating <laughs> all of those sex scenes <laughs> So I had to warn. I had to warn certain people not to listen to the audio. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's that's fine. I I really I like that you read it because it just made it feel even more authentic. I think you you put a lot of, uh, or you it it was very passionate. You read it really passionately, and just like it was refreshing to hear exactly what you had envisioned it to sound like when you were writing it if you understand what i'm saying there yes i do of anything it was exactly what you intended it to be and i, I yeah thank you i i'm not a, a fan of audiobooks myself and i think it's because i want my own experience of the book but a lot of people who have heard the audiobook have said to me that's what they appreciated about it that mm-hmm. they had my handle on it and um and so i'm glad that it's resonated in that way with some listeners yeah um, so I was very thrown, but also sort of delighted to see the um, the infusion of Benham's journals, um, some pages from his journals in the in the books. So I wanted to find out um, why why you wrote it that way to include um, aspects of his journals. Um, why was that important as a part of the story? Well, yeah, as a part of the telling of the story. That's a really good question. It's one I haven't been asked before. And, you know, I've probably done hundreds of interviews now. Part of it was I wanted to add to the air of authenticity. I wanted the novel, even though it is fiction, to read like a real account. Um, And so with Benham's journals, as well as with the extracts from various witness testimony at the trial, um, the idea was that the more points of view you get on the things that have happened, 
the more the reader can be tricked into thinking that they're real, which after all is the aim of a novelist is to tell you made up things, but get you to believe them. Um, but, the, but the other thing was this idea of points of view and how um, the same incident or the same issue or the same question can be answered so differently and seen so differently from different perspectives. Because one of the things, one of the preoccupations that drove me to write the novel is how we accept history as some kind of objective reality when in fact it's just a lot of the time subjective opinion. You know, what we believe about what happened depends on who's telling us the story about it. And so when we get Benham's point of view on things, it's meant to undermine what we've been, been told or been um, shown through Franny's perspective. Um, and also for me, it was an interesting challenge. They say um, to novelists that when you're writing villains or antagonists that, that the biggest sin is making them two-dimensional, that you should try to understand them as much as you try to understand your protagonist. And so for me, here was this marvelous challenge because I'm a Black woman writing in the 21st century with my own perspective on history and the harm that people like Benham did to the people who were my ancestors. And yet I am setting myself the task of trying to understand his perspective. And in trying to understand his perspective and Langton's, the thing I kept coming up with um, was desperation. So there's venality, obviously, but there was also huge desperation in everything that they were doing. Um, it's this idea of men who have gone down a wrong path and then found themselves at a dead end, about to lose everything, you know, about to lose their sources of income because of this um, first the abolition of the trade and now the um, emancipation legislation and how that desperation would have impacted them. And when I understood that about the desperation and tried to think about what it would feel like, I think it... Um, I hope anyway that it made his character come off the page a bit because what I didn't want was two dimensional villains. I wanted them to be as complicated as everyone else in the novel, uh, but I also didn't want to redeem them. You know, there, there are, um, there is absolutely no arc of redemption for people like that, but I think it, it's, it doesn't tell a good story if you reduce all of their motivations to just pure evil without trying to think about how that actually worked in real terms. Thank you. You're literally blowing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> this book blew my mind, I should say. I, you know, I, I've been quoted elsewhere. And it came from you. <laughs> it requires a little bit of madness to write a novel. And if you're not mad when you start, then you're mad when you finish. So it was, <laughs> there were times when the stuff I had to grapple with also blew my mind. <laughs> I think I just have one more question, Sarah, um, and it's uh, uh, one of the most iconic lines in the book. I think we all agreed on that there's nothing worse than a white woman when she's bored. And I'm just, uh, I really just want to know what your, how did you come to that conclusion? And how did you know that you speak so deeply to so many people? Like, I just, it's, uh, it's perfect. Do you get any sort of reactions to that? Yeah. 
remember it's not it's not my line but a character's line so it's not you know i have to say <laughs> as, many no, as many novelists are right, also right, to right. the, things, the things my characters do and say are not necessarily my opinions and okay and yes, remember yes. also one of the best characters in this novel i had didn't i didn't mention her when i spoke about fiba and sal but one of the best characters in this novel and one for whom i have a great deal of affection as well is prue bless her you know who is also kind of um uh, a character who has come to terms with what has happened to her and who is a real friend to Franny, even if Franny doesn't appreciate the friendship at that time. So there are all kinds of complicated characters in this novel. But in the context of the early 19th century in Jamaica in particular, um, that boredom was responsible for a lot of suffering. The boredom of the mistress, I would call it. Um, and it's, it is that boredom which perhaps causes the most harm to Fibba and Franny on the plantation. You know, Miss Bella's toying with them as much as, as Langton does and the, the idea that, that Meg toys with Franny and Laddie as much as her husband toys with people as well. And I think the reason it had to come out in the novel was because um, one of the things I wanted to do with this novel was try to excavate beneath hypocrisy. So not just the hypocrisy of George and London and this, you know, the Jane Austen um, tropes of, you know, the marriage plot and the balls and the civilization, but, you know, how that is all hiding this underbelly of slavery and addiction and sin. But also this hypocrisy about um, virtuous womanhood in George and London and how we don't pay attention to how much harm that did to the people who were under their thumb. But in a way, this is human nature as well. Um, people suffer, but in turn, they cause suffering to others. And it's that um, paying forward of the suffering sometimes I think we lose sight of, which is why Franny is also, is also complicated in that way. She has horrible things done to her, but she must come to terms with the fact that she also does horrible things to others. So it's all about illuminating some aspects of hypocrisy and the way we see this time period and the people in it. But I, but I really must hasten to add, it's not personal opinion. <laughs> and that, um, you know, speaking of Jane Austen, that, um, that reminds me of another thing I said when interviewed about this book, which is that, you know, I wanted to put a Jamaican woman into Jane Austen society. And so let's see if we can do more of this, if we can put black women into a context where we're not used to seeing them, in particular in relation to their romance plots and, um, and the marriage plots and the balls and the carriages. And uh, why not? Um, and that is, a, I think, is a little bit of restorative justice, which is what fiction can do. We can imagine people into situations where, where they should have been and might not have been in history. I am going to wrap this up, but thank you for agreeing to do this and for continuing to blow our minds. Um, this was one of the books where a lot of people, myself included, when I saw it being advertised, I was quite hesitant to read a book that had something about a slave narrative and then once I started reading I didn't even get to page three and I was like okay this book is going to blow my mind and it did <laughs> and thank I'll, you thank you so much a lot of people in book club also felt hesitant at first but then once they got into it they just could not stop reading and googling and researching everyone kept on messaging that 
they were going back and forth and they were taking their time reading it because they were also researching alongside the book. So thank you so much for that experience. It was amazing reading it. And now I'm curious about what you're working on next, if you're able to say. Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for that. That is exactly what I hoped to hear when I finished writing the book, even including the initial reluctance, because I completely understand it and feel the same way as a reader. But it just shows what's still possible if we think outside the box in terms of stories from this time period. Um, Having said that, I am staring clear of um, far history now, so no more early 19th century for me. I, I, at the moment, my current novel is um, moving between the 1980s and the present day, although it may, that may change because it's still a work in progress. And it is about a love story between two people who first meet as teenagers in a kind of suicide cult. So it's a little bit loosely inspired wow. by wow. Jonestown. It's very gothic. Um, <laughs> And very dark because I apparently can't move away from dark, but I've definitely moved away from history. So it's all stuff that I can remember from the 1980s, including all of the wonderful music and food and clothes and all the rest of it. So I'm having fun with that. That sounds really exciting. I am ready for that. And I'm ready for more black characters in gothic novels because yeah <laughs> and black something... and black characters in love you know love yes. stories that's what i that's what i want love stories between black characters so yes definitely gothic was something i grew up reading in high school and then i moved away from it because i just couldn't see myself in it so this is very refreshing and thank you so much for writing and creating and sharing these worlds because you do have people that want to read it so thanks so much for sharing what you're creating thanks so much all of you that that's really wonderful to hear thank you for reading and discussing thank you you're amazing thank you so amazing (laughs) right back at you sarah i think sarah made interviewing her very easy uh we spoke about just how absolutely brilliant she is intellectually, but just her her ability to write and her ability to convey her ideas so well, so clearly. Um, and that's, of course, because she has done the research. I mean, in addition to her having a Jamaican background, she's done the research necessary to do this. And that made it that I think that's what really made this interview goes so well for me that and her personality she just seems to have this really great personality um i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily say like an aunt but somebody you can really sit down with have a conversation with and yeah i i really enjoyed talking to her and i really hope that we get to talk to her again um whenever her next book comes out which i'm really looking forward to i'm gonna echo the same sentiments as christina i was totally in awe by her personality she just i loved her i loved her self-awareness she spoke with a lot of grace and a lot of confidence and i want to be like her when i grow up she was great i loved the interview and it was very approachable it was very like she was really easy to talk to 
Like, I, I could envision us having that conversation on her patio at her house, drinking tea and just laughing <laughs> and enjoying life. She has a cat stroking while she just casually tells us about <laughs> Franny and her inspiration, Be, you know, like behind the characters. And I'm just like, yo, this is this this is life that I love. Like, I feel like I need to have a pen and a paper with her at all times. Yeah. <laughs> that when she just dropped them wisdom or dropped some things I'm gonna know, I'm gonna just make a note. Yes. <laughs> note to self. <laughs> or... Read this book that Sarah Collins mentioned. <laughs> but Sarah, it felt like she could have a, a whole other book with the type of information that she just has. <laughs> like just another version of a Franny Langton, a whole series that could have yeah. existed in yeah. that world. And I am um, extremely jealous of people who get to interact with her on a daily level. And all I could think was, wow. Yeah. Can I get a wow? <laughs> wow. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, wow, then. Jerrine, why no, that wasn't me. That was Jerrine. <laughs> oh, Jerrine, that was your wow. No, that was Jerrine's wow. wow. No, I said, that was no. You. I said oh. no. Oh, I thought you. No, I thought you were humoring her like wow. No, why why this is not me? a political podcast. Why on a flat me? <laughs> wow. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. But that was great. That was that was fun. And um, we've been reading some good books. You're welcome. This year. Thank you. No, really. Thank you. <laughs> Seriously. Thank you. I I really hope you guys liked that interview as much as we did. And I hope if you haven't read the Confessions of Franny Lanthorn yet, that you enjoy it and you enjoy the layers and layers of research that went into it and how beautiful those layers were covered with just an amazing story. You do like our podcast, please give us our give us a rating on Apple if you listen to it there. And we have one rating so far, um, but there are no comments. It's just a five star rating. Just <laughs> a five star rating. I am grateful for that five star rating. But thank you. Uh, thank you, five star rater. <laughs> I know people have been messaging us that they like it, especially people from across the Caribbean. So that's really awesome. Um, but if you can leave, share it with your friends. That'd be great. And also, mm-hmm. if you don't have the Confessions of Franny Langton, but you live in Jamaica, we have some copies in our bookstore that you can order online. And hopefully, we can get that to you in a time of COVID. And you'll have something. Now, hopefully, can give you comfort if that's your thing. Or if not, you can just put it down and read it whenever this whole thing blows over. Uh, yeah, so that's it. Oh, one other no thing. No promote. Mm-hmm. Two other things. Shit, there are lots of other things. So it's mm-hmm. great. This podcast, if you like it, buy the book. If it sounds like something you want to read. Uh, three. Donate to Rebel Women Lit so we can get this stuff on transcript. Um, I know there are people in the deaf community that follow the Rebel Women Lit pages on social media and they do read along and they do use your library. So I'd like to have this part of the book club also accessible. So if you can donate, that would be amazing. So we can pay for someone to transcribe this whole thing. And I'll see you guys next for book club. Bye. Bye.